And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show's Weekend Review. My name is Jack Collins and I'll be your host. It's great to have the Weekend Review back in your audio headphones, but it's great to be back on the show. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by the wonderful Mr. Carl Anker of The Athletic. Carl, how you doing, mate? I'm doing good, mate. How are you? I haven't seen you since the third place playoff game of the World Cup. Yeah, it's um, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm, I'm losing my voice a little bit, which is not the ideal thing you get as a podcaster. But alas, <laughs> we'll work our way through this. this I'm going to leave the legwork to I you. I always mate. have cough syrup <laughs> by my desk. I'm showing it off to the camera to your man it's now, listening. Very special. You always have cough syrup when you're a podcaster. Yeah, it's the uh, it's vocal zones, strepsils, the whole shebang. But um, we're, we're getting there. This is this is the remnants of my voice. It's all been had. And um, but what a weekend to talk about, Carl. And loads and loads of interesting bits and bobs. There were a lot of derbies this weekend. We saw the Manchester derby. You were at that, so we're going to kick off with that. We're also going to talk about the North London derby, the Glasgow in the Super Cup final in Spain, and Napoli playing Juventus and hammering Juventus. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about Chelsea's signing of Mikhailo Mudrik and basically trying to work out what the hell is going wrong at Liverpool. So lots to get through. Let's start in Manchester, where there are going to be a lot of headlines, Carl, I think, about the fact that the decision for Manchester United's equalising goal was incredibly controversial. But before we come on to that, I think it's worth pointing out as a kind of like overarching thing, the United were very good value for at least a point in this game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Eric Ten Hag coached a minor masterclass in the first half in particular. Uh, that was one of those first halves that I think you might describe as tactically intriguing if you weren't giving it your full intent, uh, attention because you're sort of going, why, why are Manchester City being so flat? And then you sort of blink two or three times and go, oh, they're playing flat because Manchester United are doing something quite specific to stop them from passing the ball around. So, uh, you know, four, two, three, one, classic. Well, you know, Derek Ten Hag's favorite formation. Uh, Fred w- was basically told to to follow Kevin De Bruyne around like a shadow. Uh, you had Christian Eriksen on Rodri every time Rodri dropped deep to try and do that sort of three one six that a lot of modern teams play. Uh, and then Marcus Rashford and Bruno Fernandes were the wide players, and they were tasked to track back. Uh, and not only were they tasked, you know, track back with some intensity, but also to track back a lot deeper than how Manchester United wide players have tracked back against, let's say, bottom half opposition. Uh, so that was basically the plan, a midfield trap in the middle, and, and then also a lot of aggression out wide. So City couldn't really do anything. And I'd say within the first 20 minutes, you were seeing Erlen Haaland drop all the way to where you'd expect the defensive midfielder to pick up the ball. I didn't, you didn't really get any touches in the opposition penalty area until the half hour mark. Um, and that was good. That was really good for Manchester United. I think the first 25 minutes, first 20 minutes of the second half, City got into the game a bit more. 
laps and concentration. I think the Bruyne started really moving through your thread a bit, and then you got the equaliser. Ten Hag himself said the start of the second half just wasn't good enough. Uh, and when you think that City goal was going to open up the floodgates, well, momentum swings because it's a derby. These are the things that happen in derbies. And I know that's what you're going to say about this decision. I mean, City's goal, I thought, was really nicely worked. Um, and obviously, De Bruyne gets down. It's just one of those goals you look at and you're like, that's just really well put together. And there's not much you can do about them. I was delighted for Jack Grealish for what it's worth because I think that he's had a tough old time. Some of it self, self-inflicted, self you know, you'll admit. But I think he's had a tough old time. And his numbers have generally, or his underlying numbers, have tended to be better than maybe his output has suggested. So uh, for him to score a big goal in the derby, I, I think would be a moment for him, even if it didn't matter in the end. But then there's the equaliser. And it's a very, very strange moment in so many ways. Marcus Rashford clearly mm-hmm. offside when the through ball is played. He sort of runs after the ball, sort of shields it a bit, and then Bruno Fernandes sticks it in the top corner, which is... Fun. It's a lovely finish, actually. Um, the city, the flag goes up. The city players think he's offside, and then after a long check, the goal is given. Rashford is decided not to be interfering with play. If I was a city fan, I would be absolutely seething. Um, but as you say, these are the kind of moments that only really happen in derbies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, I, I'm the Manchester United reporter from the Athletic. Uh, I'm also a Manchester United fan. Uh, and, and when you're telling me about our City fans being apoplectic, I'm going to admit that a small grin appeared upon my face. So, <laughs> right, there you go. There's me admitting my internal biases uh, as well. Uh, and also, you know, I, I know Marcus Rashford a little bit as well. So that's me getting all them out of the way so you you know that was very what's colouring my opinion there. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Right. First things first. Casemiro plays the through ball over and that through ball is 100% intended for Marcus Rashford. No doubt in my mind. That ball is, is for Marcus. That is, that is a thing that Casemiro and other Manchester United midfielders have been doing a lot this season, which is Marcus is our best counter-punching threat. Let's go for it. Marcus runs off this ball, and whether or not he can't get the ball out from under his feet or Bruno Fernandes is behind him and saying, you're offside, leave it. There's a, I'd say, a, a kerfuffle in there. But for all intents and purposes, I was in the stadium going, Rash was about to have a shot. Uh, it very much, Akanji said after the game that he didn't really chase after him because he knew he was offside. So he was like, well, that's done. So he wasn't doing things properly. And if you watch the highlights, uh, Edison's position very much seems based on where Marcus Rashford is and where Marcus Rashford is likely to shoot. And then Bruno Fernandes shoots instead. Uh, and when it happened in real time and in the stadium, I went, oh, ooh, ooh, Rashford's going to, oh, it's Bruno. Oh, it's a goal. Um, and I think what's also interesting that you know, in the stadium is Bruno Fernandes doesn't so much celebrate as wag his finger as he runs over to the linesman. And again, this is one of those things that, one of those circumstances that only really happens in a derby. I think it's also one of those circumstances that could only really happen between Marcus Rashford and Bruno Fernandes because they have a very, very distinct playing chemistry. There's been two or three times. There's a BT Sport uh, conversation Rashford had with Rio Fernand a couple of years ago where he describes scoring a goal against Brighton. He said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, the moment Bruno's on the ball, I know to get on my bike. And Rio went, do you do that for any other player? It's like, no, like, it's more or less Bruno and Pogba and, and like two or three others. So they have a sort of yeah. very keen playing relationship. And I think if Bruno says something, Rashford's going to do it very quickly. And Bruno is also the sort of player who, 
has a very quickness of thought to go, that boy's offside, but I can get away with this. You know, he did a very good interview with Adam Crafton, and he says sometimes he likes to stand where the referee's standing because you can't mark that position. Like he's he's a he's a sneaky intelligence to him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think yeah, this thing doesn't really happen if it if it's any other player other than Bruno Fernandez. And also I think Bruno Fernandez I think Bruno Fernandez's point is he doesn't celebrate or he doesn't have the moment where he looks at the linesman. He's immediately in a linesman place going, he didn't touch, he didn't touch the ball. He didn't touch the ball. Go check, go check, go check. So the conversation immediately said match officials. If I'm, you know, if you allow a little editorial flourish, I think Bruno is very uh, match intelligent to turn the conversation into did Rashford touch the ball or not, rather than what the conversation should have been, which is was Rashford interfering with play? Because there's very good reason to believe from many, many people that Rashford was interfering with play right up until the moment he decides to hold his leg back. Yeah, uh, Ten Hag gave a very diplomatic answer where he said, yeah, well, I can see it from the other side. Why be annoyed? Uh, whereas Pep Guardiola was um, very Pep Guardiola-esque in saying it should not have stood. Yes. Exactly. Where do you stand on this? So I have a, a funny one on it in that I think he is interfering with play and I think it probably shouldn't stand. But I also lay a little bit of blame at Kanji's door here because if he makes a visible effort to get around Rashford in order to get to the ball... I think there can be no doubt whatsoever in the officials' minds that he is then interfering with the play. For him stopping and not playing to the whistle, and I know that sounds very Sunday league and very basic, but him stopping and basically not attempting to get to it because he believes that Rashford is offside and is going to get there, I think puts him in a difficult situation. He's made a rod for his own back by basically, and then admitting afterwards, I didn't track because I knew he was offside. We're like, well, no, that's not how it works. You have to keep playing until you know, the ball goes dead. And and ultimately, he doesn't do that. So I think it shouldn't stand. But I also can look at it and be like, mm, maybe Akanji should be doing more there in, in order to, to mm. make it to make it very obvious that Rashford is in his way. Um, but obviously, it changes the momentum mm. of the game. And then a couple of minutes later, United are 2-1 up. They're flying. This is a really, really well-worked goal. Obviously, there are, there are moments of luck in it in terms of where the ball bounces and, and comes back to Garnacho. But the execution actually from that point, I think, is is really quite impressive, especially from such a young player. Absolutely. Garnacho, uh, there was a very good tweet I saw, basically describing how Garnacho doesn't seem to be afraid to run at anyone in the Premier League. He's, he's got that young man's body, but he's also got the young man idea of, oh, it's Kyle Walker. Oh, it's Akanji. It's two players who, by all accounts, are faster than me. Got to have a go anyway. Um, and again, at Old Trafford, I thought the ball was out and he sort of spins back. Uh, you know, ma- manufactures an inch out of nowhere to spin back and then make the pass. I think also to have the foresight of mind from his initial charge through to not go, I'm going to have another shot anyway, but to look up and go, Marcus is probably still there, shows that even though he's, you know, he's got the young man's confidence, but he's also got a little bit of that mature playmaking skill. Yep. Garnacho, I am hesitant to say Gar- Garnacho has it, but I, I will say Garnacho has something. There's a that little bit sense. of X factor going on there, as yeah, far as yeah. I'm concerned. I think I think you know that he will most definitely need to 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 bulk up a bit and maybe sort of second puberty or you know get his man's body, as they say in, in NBA basketball and whatnot, before he can play as a central striker. But this sort of super sub option that Ten Hag can have is really interesting. Also, you know, again at Old Trafford when Ten Hag summoned Garnacho, Garnacho's got his you know snoot up all the way up to his nose and. He sort of was doing high knees and, and Ten Hag's grabbed him. He's done a really big, like, come here. And then before he plays him, he puts his arm around his shoulder and gives him really 
like, I want to say a minute to a minute and a half detailed conversation about the left and saying, you know, he's, he's sort of doing hand motions, saying, I want you to jut in here, jut in here. And then he also does a bit. And again, I'm, I'm really sorry for this, doing this in a audio medium, but he spins his hand in a sort of clockwise direction to go back to midfield and points to certain areas of midfield for Garnacho. I think Danal is going to be very, very good for Garnacho. I think there's been two or three young players that broke through at Manchester United in, in the COVID seasons that didn't really have a true position. They were halfway between being a winger, halfway between being a striker, uh, and their decision-making in the final third was a little bit scratchy, whereas Ten Hag really seems to be very clear in what he wants Garnacho to do. And you mentioned about how the momentum shifted in so quickly. One thing that uh, is quite apparent in the celebrations for the second goal is that Scott McTominay and Lissandra Martinez are in bibs and their match-playing shirts, and they ran on. Those two players were meant to come on before the first goal is scored. Mm. Laurie Whitwell, Manchester United reporter, tweeted, you know, McTominay and Garnacho uh, and Martinez are being ready to come on. And the substitution isn't made after Rashford's goal. And basically, they only come on in the 84th minute, yep. which shows just how, what a helter-skelter distance it was. Ten Hag spoke before, uh, after the game, about how he planned to bring in those substitutions or what he planned both men to do. And, and then we got a goal, so I went, leave it for a little bit and then you bring them on it's it, it speaks to two things one just how how bizarre derbs can be and how momentum can shift and two this sort of softer underbelly that we've seen to Manchester City this season in that when strange things happen they can get their their their, their noses bloodied a little bit more than than in previous seasons yeah the cackles on the cat seem to come back up a little bit at the moment I think it is quite interesting watching their body language and reaction and look, I didn't think City were dreadful um, I just thought United were good. And look, it leaves United currently fourth after Newcastle won today against Fulham. But it's one of these games where you're going, okay, Man United are now, you know, just a couple of points behind Manchester City, a couple of points behind Arsenal. You're like, okay, cool. You know, what wh- what are we looking at here in terms of a title challenge? Is this the year finally where you look at it and go, are United back in the title race? The answer might this might be no. By the way, this is this is not a leading question in terms of where it is. But I think having now, if, if City are in a title race, so so are United. Though I think the fact that such a question can be asked is 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 a testament to Ten Hag and what he's done this season. You consider after the defeat against Brentford, people were were saying, could this be Frank the Bull Mark II? Um, and lo and you know, yes, okay, we're not at the halfway point of the season. Manchester United still have to play Crystal Palace. And then perhaps after a game against Arsenal, then we can mention the T word. But after Manchester United beat Arsenal at Old Trafford, I, I was talking to Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher uh, and I said I didn't believe either team would finish in the top four. So uh, egg on my face. But I, I very much believe that this season was going to be a story of, of the City, Liverpool, Duopoly, Chelsea on the Tuchel. Uh, and, and Tottenham Hotspur doing things. And, and what we've got is a fantastic Arsenal side who are, seem to be the best team in the country by a sizable margin now. Uh, a really good Newcastle team uh, and a Manchester United team that have gone from being outside contenders for the top four to, I mean, we can we can call them top four favourites now, I think. And then maybe the title contenders ask me at the end of the month. Yeah, I, I think this is it. They're in the conversation at the very least. And, and, and therefore... You know, that that's an, an, a major turnaround and a major step for Ten Hag. To begin with, you know, he's looked at this squad. 
he's had some really big issues in terms of personnel, in terms of on-field things, in terms of off-field things, in terms of injuries, working out who plays where, you know, and, and he hasn't had his preferred 11 for long periods of this season. And yet United are motoring and playing really well. And it, it just all feels very rosy. You know, my, a couple of my cousins are, are Manchester United fans. And, you know, it was the whole United are back. And obviously we've seen false dawns on that front in the last couple of years. But this doesn't feel like a full storm. This feels like the start of something quite special, I think. This feels... It feels like a prototype, if I can say that. Yeah. Yeah. Ten Hag spent over over 200 million in the summer transfer market. He brought in four brand new starters. You are now beginning to see the seeds, blossoms, bulbs of of what football team Manchester United are going to play in 2023 and 2024, you know, they are now playing settled possession in a way that they haven't played on the previous managers. There were times where Manchester United may have won the derby, but they, they also did it treating the football a bit like a bomb, especially when building out the back. Whereas now they can really pass it around for, for, for three or four minutes without panicking and go, okay, we're just going to eke out a little bit of space and we can defend and using the ball, which nearly all of the top six teams can play, but, other than Spurs, I think, at the moment. But United hadn't been able to do for uh, several seasons. And now they can do that. The reason why I think quite a few United fans are going to be giddy about tight race stuff this weekend, but probably less giddy come February and March, is because of the financial situation. You know, uh, Ten Hag's spoken a lot about needing a striker. Uh, and, and what they've done is, is loan a player in for, for $2.8 million, where I think quite a few Manchester United fans would rather spend... Uh, 100 million on someone from Serie A or, or 40 or 50 million from someone from the Bundesliga or La Liga, right? So that, that's the sort of situation. But there, there is this sort of belief in the Manchester United fans that haven't, hasn't been there since perhaps interim Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. This is the longest winning streak for Manchester United since uh, interim Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I believe as well, which is this idea that when the team sheet comes out, instead of having a, a cry and a moan about a certain player not being there, there's this growing sort of, I don't understand this, but Ten Hag does, which a United manager hasn't had in a little bit. And I think that is that is interesting. There's too many, There's quite a few, oh, haven't had that in a while, feelings for Manchester United fans. And I think that's the big difference now to where they were last year and the years before that. There's a real presence in the, on the touchline, in the dressing room, that the aura mm-hmm. is starting to return. And I, I think that's a major thing in all of this. You know, teams haven't been afraid going to Old Trafford. And I know that sounds cliche, uh, but I think it's true in that you look at the, at the you know, the, the fixture list. As a Fulham fan, I looked at the fixture list at the start of this year, or at least, you know, a couple of years back when Fulham were in there and thought, United, winnable. You know, and I never grew up with that. I grew up in an era where you go, we well, write off the two games to Man United and you think about the other, you know, the other 36. That was, that was, the, that was the whole thing. And now I think teams are looking at that and going, well, that's going to be a really difficult game. And, and, and that's where we're at. And that's got to be a good thing from a United perspective, I think. Absolutely. I, I think this week will be big, a big test. I think I will be going to, to Salas Park for the Crystal Palace game on Wednesday. Uh, and I, I've already written a couple of words and done my deep, deep dive. And big one for me is just I've, I've drawn up the, the starting 11 from the last visit to Selhurst Park at the end of last season where, where Crystal Palace won a goal by a goal to nil. Um, and you look at that starting, it was 
game where Edison Cavani started, Juan Mata was playing, uh, Handel Mejri was playing, Alex Talese at left back. And, and you look at what will likely be the starting 11 on Wednesday. And yes, again, over 200 million was spent bringing in four new starting players. But the transformation and the... Um, you consider how Manchester United play, fans were largely apathetic, if not quite mean to some of their own players towards the end of last season. Uh, and, and now the, the feel-good factor appears to be in, especially in some of these celebrations. Uh, I think that that's quite remarkable. I mean, it shows what a good job Eric Ten Hag has done. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, talking of feel-good factor, let's come on to the North London derby where Arsenal won at Spurs. Carl, the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that this is the derby that for so many years I've just gone, whoever's at home wins. Just it, the North London derby, whoever's <laughs> at home wins. That's how it's been for so long. So for Arsenal to go and win at Spurs today feels like such a statement. Oh, yeah. Uh, and also just comprehensive. Oh, yeah. This was, I'd, I'd say at halftime, it, it looked done and dusted. Paul Merson was on Sky Sports as one of the pundits uh, and Paul Merson every now and again needs a bit of encouragement to, to to articulate what he's seeing instead of just saying it's good or bad but at full time he he was in a fantastic chatty loquacious mood about Saka uh, about the po- midfield pockets that that Tottenham Hotspur were just freely giving up to to Odegaard and others um, and about also the weaknesses of Tottenham Hotspur when he's saying you know if you, if you he said something which I found quite interesting, which was, if you're going to play three at the back, your wing backs have to be your best players. Uh, and he goes, but if you look at this Tottenham Hotspur side, uh, their wing backs perhaps are their weakest players, and that creates difficulty because it increases the pressure on Harry Kane to to conjure things. And he also said, Harry Kane can't really be your best playmaker and your goal scorer. You, you can't have two Harry Kanes, which I thought was was a really good breakdown of where the faults in this Tottenham team were. While also he had sort of his tongue in his cheek singing the praises of Saka and others. This this was a game that is true vindication for for Arteta's methods. The North London derby for me has been the most entertaining game in the Premier League for 10 years, maybe even 15 years. Not because it, you know, it's, it's the two best teams in the Premier League, it's always been the two best teams, but there's always been an entertaining edge. You know, there, There's always a red card or a penalty or, or a silly officiating thing or uh, a Rabona nutmeg goal or something or other in there to make that, this game ridiculous. Whereas you don't get just total control and dominance from a team in the way that we've seen from Arsenal uh, this Sunday. Yeah, I mean, the official didn't do anything stupid, so Hugo Lloris took it upon himself to uh, to play the villain for his <laughs> own team, which was very strange. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, we'll talk about that goal in a second, but... What I thought was interesting today, and and well, it's been interesting for a while. I imagine it's not interesting for a Spurs fan. Spurs don't turn up with the first forty-five minutes of games, and this is not a one-off today. You saw this on Boxing Day against Brentford. You've seen it in the in the Villa game. There is like no explanation. It's one of the most confusing things in the Premier League at the moment. I tweeted something to that effect earlier. It makes no sense whatsoever. But Spurs refuse to play for the first forty-five minutes of games, and you can maybe get away with that occasionally by having really good second halves and by having a player as magical as Harry Kane in your team who can make things happen. But you can't get away with it against Arsenal in this kind of form. If you're going to shoot yourself in the foot and play one-footed, you can't do that against a team who are steamrolling away at the top of the league. 
Truly, it, it's so that the first, the first North London derby was uh, ridiculous. It, it seemed like Conte essentially wanted to seed possession in very key areas and then try and count the punches way out, which was that's not how you play football in twenty twenty. Brave at brave at best. Brave at best is how I'd put it. Yeah, right. That, it, 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 it's a very two thousand six method of of playing football, um, and what we're seeing on Sunday was it didn't seem as if it was a deliberate choice to see possession and see territory. It just Arsenal was so much better. Right. And we know we know what Conte likes in a football player. We've seen the evidence at Chelsea, we've seen evidence at Inter Milan, we've seen evidence at Juventus. He likes physicality and he likes a functionality over flair that means when the Conte teams are good, they can punch you they can you know they can beat you up in what teams often tend to be four two four. And there's just a myriad of very strong, very powerful players that just steamroll you and they dominate those areas because they're bigger, faster, stronger, primarily. And they, they practice their methods over and over again. And there's, you know, people talk about why they're not very good in Europe and blah, 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 blah. But that's what a Conte team's meant to look like. You know, we know what, we know what Inter's Conte look like. We know what Juventus's Conte look like. And all those things are, that's a Conte team. And it's been 15 months and you're looking at this Spurs team and you're going, they've gone backwards. Yeah. And, it could be, you know, Paul Merson's observation that the wing backs aren't particularly good. It could be the Kulovsky thing in that he's not been fit for, for large parts and he's very important to link central midfield and the front three. It could be Son being in having a career in a dear season for Tottenham Hotspur or one of his worst seasons since 2015. It could be the uh, very precise sort of central midfielders this Spurs squad has and the fact they haven't really got a, a great passing number 10 figure. It's probably all of these combinations. Yeah. But they're not playing like a Conte team should play and they're not playing like how you would expect any of the quote-unquote super teams or, or big clubs in Europe play. They, they don't They don't seem to be interested in doing things that a Bayern Munich want to do when they play football or a PSG want to do when they play football or even a, a Napoli or AC Milan or, or you know, Villarreal. It's just, they're a statistical aberration and you're going, why? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't make much sense. Um, and I mean, we'll come on to it, with, you know, what what Spurs do and whether whether Conte has time, but I think we should just look quickly at the goals. The last thing you want to do is hand Arsenal gifts, but I'm not sure what Luis is doing at all. It, it's like, I, I can't, I've, I've watched it about maybe a hundred times now and I am still searching for any sort of logic behind the decisions he makes in the run-up to this goal. Obviously, there's a small deflection off Sessegnon, but the ball is going nowhere near the goal and he's positioned his body in the way that he obviously misses it with his hands and it hits him on the chest almost and goes in. And you're like, why is your body facing your own goal? Like, why on earth would you have your body in a position where you've had to angle it back in in order to, in order to actually put the ball in the back of the net? It's like a really good finish. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Being a Manchester United reporter, there was a similar circumstance where the hair conceded against Everton in the FA Cup, and he's just he's got his hand on the post, and the ball goes between his legs, and you go, "What's your thought process here?" Yeah, just quite baffling, I think. If you are a Tottenham Hotspur fan, you, I think you have a reason to be quite baffled by Hugo Lloris's form and the fact that he was very good at the World Cup up until that penalty shootout. But now it's gone back to 
to to borrow a certain phrase, someone it looks like someone space jammed his talent. Uh, he's just not. It's a growing concern for Tottenham Hotspur at the moment. Their goalkeeping situation. I think it's something that needs to be resolved. Yeah, sooner rather than later, uh, and they probably need to look into finding a, a Hugo Lloris successor because he, he's not the goalkeeper he was four or five years ago. And if Tottenham want to be the football team they want to be, or indeed keep their position that they achieved in last season, that they're, they're going to need to sort out that issue. It's a weird one because there used to be a quite unfair trope about Hugo Lloris that he was you know, prone to mistakes. And I thought it was a bit unfair. Yes, he dropped the odd clanger, but it was, I thought, something that was played up probably more than it actually was true. But now it feels like that trope has actually come to life. You know, it has gone from being one or two massive mistakes a season to, you know, one every two weeks, it feels like. There's just like, you're looking at it and going, what have you done there? What have you done What have you done that for? And it just feels like yeah. everything around Tottenham is kind of collapsing in on itself. There's that kind of like kind of everything is just sort of internally imploding and and it brings on to the question you know what do Spurs do and has Conte got long left because surely if performances continue in this vein they're going to be out of touch with with the top four quite quickly you know they're already five points behind Manchester United having played a game more and you're looking at it and going mm, you know how how do Jason Fulham would have overtaken you know Tottenham in the league if They'd beat in Newcastle today. That is not a position, considering where Tottenham want to be, that can be sustainable for all that long. No, no. And and again, Conte's demeanour in the post game was um, sour, dreary. Was Yeah, he talked again about investment, and he talked about the need for positivity, and he talked about this sort of there needs to be growth and whatnot, and. Conte has struck the, the 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 persona of a man who is wanting to leave Tottenham Hotspur every single time the transfer market opens up, uh, and he, he constantly wants investment and whatnot. I don't think Tottenham can can match his ambition, and I don't think, quite frankly, the football he's playing is worth that. I think if you're a Spurs fan, you should probably go, Mr. Conte. Christian Eriksen was available on a free transfer in the summer. Didn't fancy him. He, he'd have been, yeah, okay, maybe he's not going to counter-press in the way you want, but you're hardly counter-pressing now and you could have done with his passing. What gives? Um, Mr. Conte, you know, DJ Spence been been over there for ages. You don't appear to like him. Could you please elaborate why? Um, one thing I will say is is in, in this game, uh, Ryan Session did play pretty well and he's been a bright spark. Um, and hopefully with, with a couple more, Good performances. He he can push on and be a starting player for Tottenham Hotspur. And also, you know, I still have my fingers crossed for Ryan Session on England squad, uh, so that'd be nice as well. But yeah, this this Spurs team are baffling. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll join you in your in your Ryan Session. You're loving them. Obviously, a player very very close <laughs> to my own heart. And just want to finish on this one on Arsenal. It kind of feels mad, and you know, even discussing with Arsenal fans, they're reluctant to say that they're title favourites but they are eight points clear at the top of the Premier League. And you're looking at it and going, at what point, you know, next game is obviously the halfway stage. It's the turning point in the season. If Arsenal are eight points clear, having played 19 games, then surely it would be ludicrous to label them anything but title favourites. I think that's, I think that's tongue in cheek. I think that's a hee hee 
ness from Arsenal. Um, I think there's just that... a reluctance to, to to basically like kind of believe what's going on almost. Cool. I mean, it, 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 if you claim it and you claim the fact you're favourites, then also that means everyone else is going to start rooting on you to, to to bottle it because then they love calling you butlers, right? Um, especially when you consider who, who Arsenal's crosstown rivals are yes, of and how they uh, may or may not have bottled a certain possible title win a couple of years ago as well. I think Arsenal fans will very will privately talk to other Arsenal fans about how they're favourites and this is their year. I can also understand why publicly when they talk to non-Arsenal fans, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. But at this point in time, I think if at this point in time, you know, mid-January, if I asked you who were the top five teams in Europe, Arsenal were top three, top two. It, it, Maybe, I mean, yeah. I watched them and I watched Napoli this weekend uh, and it's those two and yeah. then the rest, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I Nagelsmann Bayern, Bayern are probably in there for me. I think they're a, a very well-oiled machine, yeah. although they now don't have a goalkeeper, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but yeah, I, I think they're definitely Arsenal are in that conversation right now and and they're definitely the top English team in there and they're top of the league for a reason. It's because they're very, very good. They're very mm-hmm. effective and they have a wonderful playmaker in the middle in the form of Martin Erdegaard, in the form of his life. It's lovely seeing a player who got the hype and everyone was so quick to write off finally actually looking like the player that they dreamed of when, when you know, Real Madrid signed him at 16 years old, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm one of my best friends. Uh, we often have this thing of saying, um, was that football player a bust or did we just have to wait for them to turn 25? Uh, and he originally used this to talk about Renato Sanchez. Uh, and then he had a big sort of, when he won the title, he was like, told you, you just got to wait until they're 25 sometimes. Uh, and yeah, I'm very happy for Odegaard. Uh, I remember when he was just on Arsenal on loan, Ian Wright was singing his praises and was insistent that he had to stay. And this was a time where it, it looked as if Arsenal had far too many number 10s. Mm. Uh, you saw going, well, you, you can kind of afford to, to let him go. He's not been an 8 out of 10. He's been good. I wouldn't say he's been spectacular. Uh, but Ian Wright was like, no, you, you know, you've got to keep him. You've got to make the big push and you got to sell him on the project and you got to sell him on what this could be and, and how important his role could be next to people like uh, Martinelli, next to people like Saka uh, uh, and next to people like Emil Smith-Rowe. Um, and again, from the outside, I'm going, that's much of a muchness. Isn't Smith-Rowe meant to be the guy in, in the number 10 position? But turns out Ian Wright knows how Arsenal work far better than I do. Uh, and lo and behold, it's what we've got. <laughs> Just a fantastic, well-oiled machine. Uh, and also something that surprised me is he, he, he looks like a captain now which is great. It's not just that he's, he's come and found a home, but he's also become a leader in, in a, just a, a great footballing team. I really enjoyed that little celebration he did with, with Saka, the basketball one. I enjoyed it too. Uh, again, it was great fun. He was on, yeah, he was on British broadcast saying, why do you do that? He's like, ah, you know, we talk about it before the game because we both like basketball. And you're like, yeah, yeah. I can tell that they're not really feeling pressure of a tight race. If you've got enough time to go, should we do a basketball celebration today? You're not really thinking about, oh no, United won. So that means blah, 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 like the points difference against City. Like, no, just go out and play. Yeah, they're having fun. I think and there's a real group of atmosphere. I would say there's some slightly nasty scenes post-game. Um, but, you know, after that, yeah. it had all been sort of cleared up and I, I don't know exactly what happens. I, I'm not going to make comments here or there on, on it. But 
the scenes afterwards where the Arsenal players went over to the Arsenal fans and Jacka had obviously been absolutely incensed by the whole affair because he is granite Jacka. Um, and then using that kind of anger to go into this kind of wild whipping the crowd up celebration. I was like, this is not together. You can tell, and, and it's one of those weird ones where it's obviously easy to be together if you're winning and you're winning the league and you don't lose very often and the fans are loving it because there's not really any negative energy around the group. But I think that there is a, a real sense of camaraderie around this Arsenal team, probably built on the you know the failures of last year at the end of it and, and it's sort of fueled in the fires in many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it was... It's been a very interesting weekend for Arsenal fans in they have the mild elation of watching City lose, the confusion that their number one January transfer target goes to Chelsea, uh, and then just the, uh, the you know, you talk to many Arsenal fans, they say they absolutely hate the derby. They also hate the derby when it's away from home and they just want it over and done with, and then they can relax. And now you have the sort of, and breathe, of being Spurs. So, yeah, I, I can imagine why they, they had those big celebrations in the corner. Uh, and uh, I don't work in an office much anymore uh, but I can imagine if there's many an Arsenal fan going into the office tomorrow that's going to have a big grin on their face and a big sort of chat about next Saturday yes indeed indeed they keep coming looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Um, talking of big celebrations, we'll go to the Clasico, which was the final of the Spanish Super Copa. Xavi's first trophy as manager of Barcelona. It's taken some time, Carl, but he's got there. The cogs are turning for Barcelona. And this was a really impressive performance. They won 3-1. But to be honest, I think that scoreline flattered Madrid a little bit. It, it, it was a Barcelona show from minute one to minute 90 in many ways. Absolutely. Uh, there was a point in the peak Pep Guardiola Barcelona teams where every now and again the Classico would happen and they'd start show... They, the Barcelona players would tell you they weren't showboating. They would tell you they were just recycling possession. 
but it felt like showboating. They're like, aha, Real Madrid can't get the ball. La, 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 like doing pig in the middle with Benzema or whatever midfielder was trying to, to win the ball back. And there were two or three patches of play here uh, where this was happening. And you go, no, hang on. This is this feels vaguely like 2011 again. Uh, I was very impressed by Gavi playing oh, yeah. an advanced role on the left-hand side. Uh, again, one of those sort of, if you weren't wearing your glasses, you go, is that Iniesta? Uh, and yeah, they, 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 they made the Real Madrid team look very, very poor. Uh, poor, I felt bad for Camavinga. In the, I, I, I truly believe he's a fantastic player and should be one of the future players of Real Madrid's midfield. But he just looks like Lost. he's not getting any of the rub of the green. He he he, he looks like he's not getting the rub of the green on Ancelotti right now. Ancelotti seems to be far more convinced that he's a left back than he's a central midfielder. Um, he got the run at a central midfield against Barcelona and Pedri, Busquets. And Gavi just, yeah, like you said, made him look lost. It's, a, it's an interesting one because obviously there's two big decisions here from Xavi in terms of selection. He puts Araujo out to right back. And as you said, he plays Gavi in this kind of more advanced left midfield role. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far to say it was an out and out winger role, but it, it was very much a, you know, a, a left-handed mm-hmm. attacker. Um, and both of them paid off beautifully in so many ways. Araujo... Got the better of Vinicius, who barely got a sniff all night. Um, and Gavi gave Carvajal one of the worst evenings of his life. Obviously scored two assists. And you're looking at it and going, that kid's 18. And, and, and I think Xavi's come out and spoken about the fact that he said, Pedri and Gavi are better than him and Iniesta were at their age. And it's a big statement. And it's also one that I think is laced with enough caution that it's not going to worry any, you know, anyone in Julie. He's gone, they're better than we were at this age. Look how long we went off for. We won everything. Come back yeah. to us when you've done that. But I think, the, you know, the signs yeah. there are stunning. These are two just absolutely top of the bar players. You know, these are generational footballers. And we're watching two of them side by side once again out of La Masia. Fantastic, and they complement each other so well, yeah. Yeah. so well. You know, Pedri, Pedri got the pause, you know, pause a little bit more, and, and can slow the pace and regulate things a little bit better than Gavi. But Gavi's work in the final third really, really helps punctuate the good work Pedri does. You know, I, I don't think one look would look so incredible without the other. And and you look at their ages, and you go, "This is ridiculous." You look at the way. I really, really enjoy how Pedri receives the ball. Yeah. Uh, so the the first goal comes from you know, a very aggressive Barcelona press as Real Madrid are trying to play out. Uh, and the ball is won and Pedri's already got his head turned and he's going, oh, Lewandowski's there. I'm just going to hit that thing. There, Lewandowski gets the ball over to Gavi and does it. And Pedri and Gavi are two of these football players where they do things that sound very simple. And when you say it out loud, you can sound a bit silly. So I like Pedri because Pedri passes the ball forward all the time. Sounds simple. Sounds silly. But that's what he's good at. Yeah, I like yeah, Gavi yeah. because he makes the right decision eight out of nine times. Eight out of nine times. I like Gavi because he makes the right decision in the final third 90% of the time. Sounds silly. But that's what they do all the time. And it's, yeah, well done, Barcelona. You've managed to make some good regens. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd hesitate to call them silk and steel because I don't think Gavi is steel Mm -hmm. and I I think it would be unfair. But as you say, that complimentary thing, the bite that Gavi brings to a team, uh, that's what I love about him. I love that he's like, I'm not afraid of a tackle. I don't care if I'm five foot seven. I'm going to snap you. And I'm like, okay, cool. I like that. like that a lot. He's like, I'm going to, if we're not playing well, I will fight you. And I'm like, oh, that kid's tiny. Yeah. He's going to fight everyone. Like, but it's really important, I think, because we've seen with Barcelona sides who are incredibly technically adept that there comes a point where teams are like, we're going to hurt you. And you need to be able to bite back a little bit. And Gavi has that tenacity. He has that drive. And he also has this incredible skill set to go alongside it. And I just think he's wonderful. I really like, I mean, I think Pedri gets all of his due and rightly so, because I think on the ball and technically, I don't think there's a more gifted youngster in, in world football right now. But I just love what Gavi brings to the table as an all-round package. Absolutely. I watched the Barcelona versus uh, Atletico Madrid when they came back from the World Cup break. So this was Jao Felix's last game. This yep. season, as the Madrid player, and the first goal is scored by Gavi, just body checking Ronaldo uh, in, in in the penalty area, and, and he is doing a, a sort of I've been fouled here. Where's the VAR? And Gavi's looking at him like, no, hit the weights. <laughs> you can't let me body check you. Yeah, um, absolutely not. Which is that? Yeah, that 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 old fashioned, you know, the Pep Guardiola Barcelona team were a lot more physical than the highlight packages will have you know. There, there was power in there as well as the pals and, and the passing. Uh, and yeah, it, it was very enjoyable. Real Madrid looked very ordinary. Um, I think Carlo Ancelotti quietly admitted defeat when he substituted Luka Modric off with about 25 minutes to play. Um, and yeah, there's, there's probably quiet questions being asked about whether or not Carlo Ancelotti needs to be moved on at the end of this season, I think, as well. Seems mad, considering the end of last year and where we were with Real Madrid, that it feels like they're in a real title scrap again. And as some Real Madrid fans were saying, yeah, ideally, we'd, we'd, you know, it's good for us to have a title race, but I really hate this. And I was like, yeah, I can, I can see why <laughs> like that. But it's a, it's a funny old game and it moves very fast. Uh, ask Graham Potter. Uh, right, let's go to Italy quickly before we come on to Chelsea, actually. Um, because... Napoli absolutely took Juventus to the cleaners. Uh, they won 5-1 on Friday night. We were talking about the best sides in Europe earlier. For me, it's Napoli by a distance. And, and that's saying something. And considering what Napoli did in the transfer window, the fact they made 12 million profit on the players they moved out and then brought in replacements for this summer, this team is absolutely cooking. And... You watch them. They're just so joyful. And obviously they had that game against Inter where they lost 1-0. And you go, that's a bit of a strange one. But generally, you know, you come back to this. Juventus hadn't lost in eight games, hadn't conceded a goal in eight games. And Napoli smashed them up. It it was like, it was a full-on like, we are going to take you behind the bins and beat you up. And and it felt like that. And at the end of the game, like I was talking to, you know, seeing what Juventus fans were saying, I don't know really what we did wrong. They were just so good. This is what Napoli have done to teams throughout this season. You know, Liverpool got a taste in the Champions League. Ajax got their noses bloodied as well. This is this squad. Okay, maybe it's not the most name brand players, but I think this squad is top five in Europe at the moment. And Spalletti's got them playing in a way that is just so vibrant and fun. And I absolutely adore Victor Oshiman. 
uh, and I still can't pronounce his name, but Kavara Donna. But if if Mudrik is going for seventy to a hundred million, then Kavara Donna is going to cost. Two oh. hundred mil, like we're at that kind yeah, of figure. Yeah, yeah. He's unplayable, like, yeah. and especially because you know he'd come back from his injury, and you look at it and you go, right, he's come back, and there was a little question, you know, post World Cup break, he was very quiet against Inter. Everyone was like, oh, has his purple patch stopped? He was like, Haha. <laughs> like absolutely no chance. He is just so special. I, I I can't get enough about waxing lyrical about him. I I'm obsessed. He's superb. Rory Smith uh, said he's just completely different from white players his age, right? You know, you, you one good and bad thing about the mass industrialization of football in the academy system is that there are a lot of players that play like a lot of other players. Yeah. And you can see someone pop up through your academy like, oh, yeah, you remind me of so-and-so because you've all been given the same textbook at some point, and you've all been given the same advice as to how to, to, to break down and do certain things in the final third. Whereas Kavara Donna, and again, I'm really sorry I can't say his real name. We can talk about this later. But his background and how he's come to the top of European football is just so different. He, he just, he's got that really nice thing of, uh, he gets the ball and uh, I don't know what you're going to do. But on top of that, it's not that I don't know what you're going to do and maybe it'll work 40% of the time. So I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to, you are going to do something more times than not. There's an efficiency here that is not supposed to happen, or we've been told you can't do it. Yeah, every international break, someone goes, modern football is dead, uh, and you haven't got dribblers anymore, and we've killed the art- artists. And it's just fantastic to have a true artist playing in this Napoli team. And I think this Napoli team is also just packed full of true artists. Yeah. Every time I watch this Napoli team, I am going, how did no one in the Premier League go for his uh, Angrisa? Why did no one go for him? When uh, I mean, I've, I've been shouting this for the rooftops for years, so I'm, I'm <laughs> going to take, no, take no credit or, or, or blame on that one. I, I just think he's just he ludicrously, was right good, there. <laughs> ludicrously good footballer. Um, although I think there is a question to, you know, to, to say, does, does his style suit? You know, said he out, or he was excellent. Villarreal when he out on loan there as well. He was good for Villa, I thought generally. Like um, when he played in the Premier League, first season was a bit of a mess. Second season, mm-hmm. he was okay. He was one of Fulham's brightest sparks. He carries the ball beautifully, and he's just gone to Terry and be like, "I'm going to dribble past absolutely everybody. There is no one here who can stop me." <laughs> it's just like okay, cool. But I think you're right in that there's a couple of players in this team who defy convention, and yes, Kvaratskhelia is definitely one of them, but. Ossiman, I find hard to compare to anyone. He's like a kind of unicorn striker in that he can do absolutely everything. He, I, um, to be, if I want to be really, really reductive, uh, you know, if someone went, you, you've only got five words to, to explain, Victor. I, I'd say, um, stretchy leg Jamie Vardy, if that makes sense, right? So that sort of rattling, counter attacking football player. Really good press, you know, can press, can run the channels, uh, can punctuate many, very good moves, and is an absolute pest on the near post. Uh, what I love about Victor Oshiman is how he, you know, off ball creation. So it's not just he'll wait for the ball to come to him, but, and, you know, this is to his plus and to his detriment. I think he'll probably have a lot more injuries than other strikers will. But the fact that when the ball is coming up, he's going to go, I'm going to beat up that defender to head the ball. Uh, and, you saw that again against Juventus, you know. Okay, fantastic bicycle kick, but the ball's out there. He's like, mine, doing. 
and he gets the first goal for Napoli. He he can turn a quarter chance into a half chance because he is clever enough, aggressive enough, uh, and gambles in a way that a lot of players don't. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's first to he, everything. He, he does it. He you does look it at when the goal the against Roma, right? He does it. He does it when the weather's terrible. He does it when it's an early kickoff. He does it when it's a late kickoff. He does it when, I don't know, his knee's hobbling a bit and you're like, ah, I don't feel like it. He just, so, you know what? Ah, nuts this. I want to put my head there. And yeah, that's probably why he's going to wear a face mask more times than not. But my God, it's also why he's going to get 20 goals a season for quite some time. Yeah, absolutely. And he strikes the ball like Batistuta. I'm like, what is going on here? There is nothing that this man can't do. It's nuts. <laughs> it's absolutely nuts. Um, as you can tell, I'm pretty hot on Napoli, but I think we will park them there or we'll be going on for three and a half hours. And much as I would love that, Carl, I feel like it's not the great audio experience that people are hoping for out of this podcast. So let's come on to Chelsea and Mikhailo Mudrik, who's been signed for a reported 70 million euro fee with 30 million euros in add-ons 100 million euros all in on a seven-year contract with a 12-month option this is a hell of a contract to stick him on for one and um, two Chelsea have signed another winger which is kind of strange considering it feels like I don't know, and this isn't meant to be negative really because I think Mikhailo Mitrick is excellent I think he might turn into a really fantastic nine and I also think there's an element here where you're looking at it and going, he could be a real like explosive talent for years to come. So I'm not necessarily questioning the actual signing. I'm just thinking about Chelsea's squad and going, is this really what you needed at this exact moment to try and help you boost this squad? Because it didn't feel like it for me. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, you also have to bring up the fact that Mudrik very much seemed to have his heart set on going to Arsenal. It was not subtle what he was doing on Instagram <laughs> in, in the last couple of weeks, uh, but here we are. Uh, the, the 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 amount of money, the fee spent, is very much an out, outbid Arsenal, and in it seems to be a very short process as to how it came about. In that Arsenal were going back and forth, and Chelsea just went, "Here's a much bigger deal and much bigger wages than what Arsenal prepared to offer." Shakhtar Donetsk went to Arsenal and went, "Here's what we've got from." Chelsea, would you like to match it? And Arsenal went, absolutely not. All the best for you. That's what happened there. And I think the length of the contract, seven and a half years with an option for 12 years, that feels like you're using amortization to, to save you from financial play, fair play. You know, that's, that's not 100 million you're paying up front. That's, that's, I'm, I'm not got my accountant cap on, but you, know, you, you spread that fee over that long a period. It's not going to look too, painful on your bank balance. Chelsea at the moment appear to be in a phase where they're going, if there is a very good young talent out there, we're going to buy them. And then we will figure out the rest after we have them there. Uh, and they've had phases on the previous ownership where they've had that. And sometimes it's worked really well. And sometimes they've had these situations where every single summer, there's at least one really, really good player from Chelsea who someone can buy. I think Mudrik at Arsenal made loads of sense. Yeah. I think he would have been their sort of Gareth Bale style figure on the left-hand side who can add extra penetrative punch and it would have given Arsenal that sort of... <clears throat> when we talk about teams that win the Premier League title, they often have a critical mass of attackers where you go, okay, maybe one day you can stop 
you know, you could stop Aguero, but if you stop Aguero, then Kyle Walker's going to hit you with a low cross. And if you stop Kyle Walker's low cross, then Kevin De Bruyne is going to get you. And if you stop Kevin De Bruyne, then Banana Silva's going to get you. And, and yeah. boom, 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 boom. And lo and behold, Manchester City get 100 points in that season. Or when Liverpool are doing well, you go, okay, if you can stop Salah, then Mane's going to get you. And if you don't stop Mane, then Firmino's going to get you. And if you don't stop them, then actually, Genie one is going to pop up and, and do that. One. And if you yeah. don't stop them, when... Yeah. yeah. And I think that was the plan for Arsenal in that he would have been that critical mass because him, Gabriel Martinelli, Jesus and whatever, just circles, rotations, constantly doing that. At Chelsea, that's a lot of players who want to play in the left house space right now. And at a time where we're still a bit unsure as to what Graham Potter's starting formation is going to be or the best 11 and why there are so many players who are injured as well, it, the signing makes sense. Question mark, question mark, question mark. In that, well done. You've got a very good player who's very young and he's going to be very good for a while. Uh, and I'm very sure that when his Chelsea career is over, Mudrick would have been, will go down as a good Chelsea player. I also think what he has is something that Chelsea don't really have right now. You know, for all of their wide players, they don't have someone with explosive Explosivity, pace. yeah. Yeah, yeah. They don't, have a, yeah. they don't have an explosive winger. They don't have someone who can just beat up a fullback. And yes, Mudrick doesn't have the best goal-scoring record at Shakhtar Donetsk, but I think Arteta and Potter are the sort of managers to go, okay, young man, I'm going to mould you a little bit into what I can do in the final third. I also think he doesn't have a great goal-scoring record, but he's the kind of player that just makes moments happen. And right now, Chelsea really do lack that vibrant spark. As you say, you know, someone you're just like, oh, you know, if the team are playing badly, can create something out of nothing. And even mm -hmm. if it wins a corner, it suddenly it gives everyone a lift. It gives the fans back a lift. You're like, oh, we have a player that can make things happen. And I think they were probably getting that a bit in, in Joe Felix. Um, but obviously they need someone to step in for the ban. 100 million seems excessive for that, but you know, it's three games, but alas, here we are. Um, but it, it's one of those where I think he will, as you say, go down as a good player. I'm just wary of what Todd Burley's doing as a strategy because there doesn't seem to be one apart from look at players that other people are interested in and buy them for more money. Now that might be reductive and, and I'm sure that there is plenty of process, but Chelsea have put a lot of discussion and a lot of emphasis and I was talking to Liam Toomey on, on the show last week about the fact that they've said no we've got a data recruitment team and we're going to become more data driven we're going to recruit a source etc 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 and instead we've ended up with this kind of Chelsea throwing money and look when we talked about Enzo Fernandez and we were talking about the fact that you you're making a player 120 million pound player you know early on in their career that's risky and I, I agree with that but I kind of think in terms of what Chelsea are looking for in terms of long term building with this squad 120 million on Enzo Fernandez for me probably feels like a more sensible solution than 100 million on Mudrick, considering the rest of the talent in the squad. Because at some point, the money well is going to not necessarily dry up, but it's definitely going to have to tighten the purse strings at some point. You know, you can only get away with saying it's my first day on the job for so long. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, you know, but to 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 paraphrase. Mr. Zidane, when McAlealy was sold, this signing does feel a bit like buying another gold, layer of gold paint for the Bentley when you need an engine. Uh, and the, you know, Chelsea's midfield has an N'Golo Kante-shaped hole over it. And there are question marks over Conor Gallagher's future feasibility in the squad. Uh, Jorginho, again, divides opinion. Uh, from what I understand, you know, I, I look on football Twitter and there seems to be many, many different camps of Chelsea fans that either love Mason Mount or think he's the worst football player of all time. And the answer, obviously, is somewhere in the middle. Uh, 
and obviously you've got the big thing of the fact that Chelsea's fullbacks are injured, right? The, the two players who are vital for both their attack and defence in Ben Chilwell and Rhys James are, haven't been fit. So you've got all of this. You've got a manager who came in mid-season. You've also got uh, a £90 million striker playing into Milan sometime that may want to return um, as well, which, hear me out. Here's a question for you. Now Mudrick is here and, and other players are here. Now you've got Mudrick and, and, and Benoit Badiashil and whatnot. Does Lukaku coming back make more sense? Yeah, I think so. And definitely under a manager who wants to play with a striker. Um, so, you know, Tuchel famously didn't like strikers. It was kind of his thing, especially at Chelsea. Um, and then you look at it and go, right, okay, that man wanted to play a really fluid, loose front three that moved around. And we look back at that season where Chelsea won the Champions League. And I think that was as close to an attacking philosophy as Chelsea have had in ages. So you look at that and you go, okay, cool. Like, where you know, that makes sense for Tuchel. It didn't make sense to bring Lukaku in at the time. We said it at the time. We're like, great striker, nice homecoming story. Great, fine. Doesn't fit with how Thomas Tuchel wants to play. This is going to not work. And it didn't, Julie. But I think that there is definitely a space for Lukaku if Chelsea are going to return to playing with a number nine because it's what their fans have been crying out for this season. So whether Lukaku wants to come back or not is a different question. Yep. But... I can see it making sense, or I can see it at least being something that Chelsea explore in the summer. So we'll yeah. see. Yeah, I, th- I think I think the best front three for Chelsea between now and the end of the season will be Mudrik, João uh, Felix, and Raheem Sterling. You? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, yeah. with, with the explosivity of, uh, uh, to come off the bench, um, if if you need it, and and I think we're going to see what Ziyech. And Pulisic probably moved on in the summer. I think that this is the kind of thing, you know, obviously Nkunku's coming in as well. You know, oh, that's yes, already done yeah, for next yeah, season. Yeah. You imagine that Jao Felix is a dry loan and it's actually not going to become permanent, but Nkunku's coming in kind of sit, fills that nine and a half gap. If you yep. Jao Felix probably will leave behind. Um, so you should look at that and then go, okay, where's this, you know, where does it leave Pulisic and Ziyech? And I think the answer is so far down the pecking order that they're not going to be at the club next season. Um, and I've said it before that Christian Pulisic is always welcome down the road at the better half of SW6. <laughs> he wants to link back up with Anthony Robinson. And um, right, let's finish with Liverpool. They lost 3 0 to Brighton. Things are not getting better. It's the impossible question in many ways, Carl. But how do you fix Liverpool? Uh, you either need a time machine, uh, a special healing spray for the injured players. Or you need 250 million plus to go get us midfielders in. I think. I think what you've got is Liverpool fans will tell you about the lack of reinforcements or the underinvestment, if you want to say, in in their in in their midfield area in particular. But you look at that lineup. That was on paper Liverpool's best midfield. It was Jordan Henderson, Thiago. Fabinho, that's 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 the one, right? That's that's the midfield that played the better part of sixty-three games last season and looked to be the best uh, top three squads in Europe, absolutely. And they just aren't playing in the way they did last season. I think Fabinho is in—you can either call it a dip or beginning a slow decline. I think Jordan Henderson has an accumulation of injuries, which means he doesn't have the explosive athleticism used to have as the number eight and also think that he, he can't do his job he do the other job which is drop deep when Trent is getting forward as well so you've got that space there that loads of teams are beginning to exploit as well Matoma 
you put Trent Alexander in a spin cycle, quite frankly. Um, and then yeah, ahead of them, a blender for Trent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then ahead of them, the front three is it's a very raw work in progress. You know, Cody Gakpo's debut, Darwin Nunez was injured and couldn't make it. And Mohamed Salah is just not Mohamed Salah in in the way he used to because he, he hasn't got his, his his old fashioned backups. He hasn't got Roberto Firmino, Sadio Mane is at Bayern Munich now. Uh, Jota's been injured and, and Lucas Diaz appears to be injured for a while as well. So this is. Brendan Rodgers, at less when he was less the manager and still is less the manager, he said that being a football manager is trying to land a plane and build it at the same time. All words to the, that effect. And I think what you're getting with Jurgen Klopp at the moment is he's got uh, a list of problems that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And his possible solutions is just fixed. There's, right, how, how do you get better here? You You either hope and pray one of your injured players comes back or you hope and pray. FSG goes, I know we're kind of up for sale, but here's X amount of money so you can go out and buy player X. Or, or you hope one of your front three players, whoever it will be, has a ridiculous scoring streak. I, I don't think you can fix these issues without a time pause, you know, an international break, so everyone can have a breather. Or, or just like a lot of prayer, which... <laughs> It feels so weird in that Liverpool made so many correct decisions in a row. And there was a point in time where I thought they just couldn't, as a Manchester United fan, I went, they are four or five years ahead of where Manchester United are going to be. And Manchester United are going to need massive amounts of luck and half a billion pounds to get there. And the gap is not what I thought it was. It's that ridiculous The gap thing. closed really quickly. I think, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And there was a gap. That gap existed. It happened. It, you know, there, there was a time. And I think that's fair enough. I, I always come back to the Alex Ferguson quote, you know, again, or, or words to that effect that he said, it doesn't matter if you're winning everything, you still need to freshen the squad up every three to five years or it gets stale. And it, you know, and actually when Liverpool moved on Sadio Mane this summer, I think it was one of those where I was like, that's obviously tough and it's it's, it's rough for Liverpool in, in that they're losing Mane. But there could be some kind of just a fresh kind of look at it and, you know, it just gives everyone a bit of like, a, oh, Liverpool are changing, the dynamics are changing, things are, are slightly different now. That I was like, okay, that could actually work. But unfortunately, just all the other things behind them. And I think there is plenty of seeds of life in this front three. Or, or the you know the options they have in the attacking third. I just think that behind them, it feels like everything is on fire. And you know when without the midfield working to its full capacity, it's leaving the fullbacks exposed in the way that they they would be in a Klopp system. That's not their own fault. It's just the way that the Klopp likes to play. He's going to look at those areas and be like, well, my midfielder should be covering those gaps when when the fullbacks go steaming forward because that's how we create, fine. Mm -hmm. But if the midfield aren't doing that, then it puts major pressure on the fullbacks who get roasted, as you say. Um, we, we saw Matoma absolutely take Trent to the cleaners uh, and Solly Marsh had a field day on the other side against Andy Robinson. So you're going, all right, so they were two of your best performers. Your centre-backs are a new pairing, fine, but coming in and, and looking, you know, these are two very good players. No one's going to sit here and, and, and tell you that Matip and Kanate are not excellent footballers. And Cody Hakpo has been chucked in up front. And I'm, you know, obviously circumstances must, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't like him up top. It was one of the reasons no, I no. thought that it was a good reason that United didn't buy him. I think he's a left winger that can play in a front two at times. And he might end up being a forward. Fine. That's not a problem. But right now, I don't think he is. 
Absolutely. And he looked lost in this game. So you're going, well, everything's on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so I, I did a video for TIFO talking about Cody Gakpo before the World Cup. And my, you know, I said, you know, based on what I've seen in PSU, I know he's a left-sided winger in in a 4-3-3. He, he's got that sort of, he 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 main strength is he's a tricky little half-space boy in the same way Jaden Sancho can be. Uh, and Louis van Gaal was using him as the number 10 in a 3-4-1-2 system for the Netherlands. And it was one of those things of maybe, you know, you sort of, I, I spoke to some of your fans, and I went, if you squint and tilt your head a little bit, you could use Gakpo as a sort of Roberto Firmino style figure in the 4-3-3 in that have Gakpo drop really deep. And then you have Darwin and Salah push up really, really high. And Gakpo's got the, the ball striking ability to hit those passes. But you can't do that in his debut. No, that's, that's, you need a full preseason for that already. Especially with Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain on the left-hand side. And I love the Ox, but he is not that dynamic player that, you know, he once was. There's no, there's none of that left. It doesn't exist. Yes. He's a very different player now. And that's not to say he's a bad player, but he's not that player anymore. With Darwin there, maybe, but not with the Ox. You can't have, you can't have him dropping because there's going to be too many players not stretching the play. And, and Liverpool were, were rightly punished. Deserve is doing a wonderful job at Brighton, though. I think probably just oh, worth highlighting. Superb, superb. Um, it, they are really good at again the, the pause, the, the pause. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure if, if how Deserve wants to play football is going to work at a team that wants to get past the Champions League quarterfinals. But it, the way he's got Brighton purring, people that want to get past the Champions League quarterfinals are going to start making offers for him. Uh, and I think Brighton now are firmly entrenched in the Premier League's middle class, right? In the same way that we spoke about Southampton in 2015, or, or we spoke about Wolverhampton Wanderers in 2017. In, in that that team, there's there's always that team who who is between ninth and fifth place in the league that can beat up any of the top six teams whenever they come to their place. Uh, I think that's Brighton right now. Uh, I'm, I'm also just delighted to see Danny Welbeck play great football and score um, you know as a Manchester United reporter and follower I, I love Danny Welbeck I also love the fact that Danny Welbeck still runs near post at a time of inverted wingers uh, and uh, inside forwards it's been very hard for to have your out and out number nine run near post all the time so I, I always have a, a, a fondness for strikers that run near post again uh, and Welbeck God bless his heart. He loves running near post. Yeah, the commitment to the cause, admirable. Uh, I respect it very, very highly. And with that, Carl, I think it's probably time for us to call it a day. So all that's left for me to do is to say thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Athletics of the Show. Thank you so much to the wonderful Mr. Carl Anker for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure, mate. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been a fantastic way to calm down on a Sunday. Yeah, nice little Sunday session just to uh, just to finish the weekend off. Um, it's been really lovely talking to you, mate. Um, I've been Jack Collins. This has been the Athletic Sox Show's weekend review. Thank you so much as ever for listening, and we will see you next week. Take it easy, guys.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.